Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Clay, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited for today's episode. So thank you for joining me and I'm excited to learn more about just uh, some of the thoughts that you have when it comes to business management and just life in general. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's great to be here with you. So let me start off with this. So you, you have experience in a variety of fields. You're a, a psychological scientist. You're a writer, consultant, public speaker, a professor. So you, you have all these different skills, attributes that come together and experiences. How did you get to this point in life? And, and talk a little bit about your journey because I'm really curious about it. So I'm a psychologist by by training. And to, to clarify that, because I think when a lot of people think psychologist, they think, oh, Clay sees clients. <laughs> you know, Clay does therapy sessions. So I'm not that kind of psychologist. So I'm a research psychologist. So I don't treat patients. But what I do is I study the mind. I study how the mind works. And my specific area of expertise is in what's called existential psychology, which is basically anything related to the big questions that humans are uniquely able to ask. So we're not the only social organism, for instance, like other animals are social. Other animals may even be political um, in terms of like concern about hierarchies and, you know, how to organize, you know, organize the the group. But humans are very advanced intellectually. And so we can look up at the stars and wonder why we're here and where we came from, what it all means and what happens to us when we die. And we can think about leaving a legacy and making the world a better place. And we can, you know, travel mentally back in time and forward in time and we have imaginations and we want to create and innovate. And so all these things are, you know, as far as we know, very unique to, or certainly most advanced in our, in our species. So that's the type of uh, psychologist I am, which seems pretty abstract. So to bring it down, you know, more to concrete or specific issues, what I'm really interested in is what motivates humans, what gets us up every day to do the things that we that we do. And in that area of existential psychology, it turns out that, of course, there's lots of things that drive us from very, very practical concerns, like having to pay our our bills to, you know, social concerns, like wanting to be liked by others, of course, and then just survival, right? But at, at the same time, there's something else going on. We want to be more than just, you know, organisms trying to eke out an existence. We, we want to matter in some way. And so it seems like the need for meaning in life, the need for purpose is a big motivator for us. And so that's kind of what I study. 
how that turned into these other areas uh, of interest is that when I was, you know, when I was a professor, you know, I am a professor, but when I started my career as a professor, I was doing everything that we're supposed to do as in kind of the research university space, which means I was writing grants, conducting research, running a laboratory, you know, doing studies, publishing articles, teaching classes, um, giving presentations and all that, you know, all that's great. I enjoy all of that. But it seems like a lot of stuff that we do um, that I, I think is important doesn't really make it outside of what some people refer to as the ivory tower, right? We do a lot of research that other researchers read and we talk about internally, but a lot of the general public uh, and people in organizations um, outside of academia don't necessarily always know about. I don't know why in particular, but that became a big a big inspiration for me is like, I wanted to feel like my work was actually connecting with people that could, it could make a difference in some way beyond just publishing and scientific journals and talking to other academics. So that's when I really started writing for the public, talking to the public. And that led to doing some consulting for businesses, corporations. That's probably the bigger interest I have. You know, I, I still like doing research. It's still an important part of my job and, you know, writing for sci- a scientific audience, but really connecting with the broader public and finding ways to, you know, to connect the research, not just I do, but other people do in psychology to, you know, to people in ways that can make a, like a, an important difference in their lives. Yeah. And I, I think that's very interesting because, you know, I agree with you. People want to engage in things that matter. Right. And and I had that experience because, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to experience different levels of success in business. And, you know, I had a, a position where I was a CFO of a company and, you know, I had the title if you want to, you know, give that any merit, which I, I really don't, but some people do. So I had the title, I, you know, I, I made a good living and, at all these things, but into the day, I was still missing something greater right there. I felt like there's this like purpose that I had that wasn't being fulfilled or discovered or, or my life wasn't being lived out the way that I wanted to. So I, I left, right. And I left all that stuff behind to, to seek out this stuff. But I, I've noticed this trend clay, and I, I want to get your opinion on this, you know, where people talk about finding their purpose and you have like Simon Sinek and, you know, he did the, the star with why, and you know, there's life coaches out there that say, find your purpose and all these blogs and articles and videos and all this media out there that talks about finding your life's purpose. And I'll talk to people and they get that. They're like, I don't know what my purpose is, whether it's a a mother and their kids just left the house and now they're just alone with their husband. And now they're trying to figure out their life purpose or whether it's a professional who's grinding out all these hours and they're, they sit back and think like, what the heck am I doing? I mean, there's, there's all different stages of life. I think where we come across this question and this big question you're talking about, is it something you can like sit down and just like figure out or is it just a matter of time or like, how do you answer these like massive questions that you're talking about? Is there an approach or are some questions just, they can't be answered without the passage of time and experience? Yeah, no, I think you make a, you make a great observation because it's true on the one hand that, like I was saying earlier, part of human nature is the ability to ask these questions, to ponder these questions. So part of that is just an ongoing thing that's always happening, right? It's not like the it's not like you can say, okay, I've reached my full capacity of meaning and purpose, and now I can just coast. You you know, we're always kind of on the quest for for significance. It's something we need to maintain or sustain. So it's kind of like eating, right? You don't eat and then say, well, I guess I'm done eating. That was great. <laughs> like you're gonna be hungry again the next day, or probably later in that same day. And so I, I kind of see it like that. It is true that we're probably 
constantly looking and thinking about about meaning and purpose. But that's not that that doesn't necessarily mean where it's because we don't have it, right? It just means that it's an ongoing process. And and to get to your point about you know how do we do that? Well, you're right that there is a lot of advice out there and a lot of writing and you know and a lot of experts who say you need to find your purpose. And like you said, people people kind of get that. That's not really a controversial point, you know, but something that I think people often don't think about is a lot of times our, our purpose doesn't come from sitting there, or I'd say most of the time our purpose doesn't come from pondering the question. That's just how our brain works. We're pondering the question, you know, pretty frequently. Purpose comes from action. You know, purpose comes from doing things. As you suggested, it might be different things at different times in our lives, or, you know, sometimes there's multiple things happening at the same time. Like you might get a little bit of purpose from going to work every day. You might get a little bit of purpose from coming home and, you know, being with your family. You might get a little bit of purpose from, you know, pursuing that, that fitness goal that you, you've had, you've run, always run the, you know, to run a marathon. You might get a little bit of purpose from feeling like you, you know, you have some kind of artistic endeavor that you want to complete that, you know, you've always had, you know, had the dream of learning to play guitar. So it's a, it's a multifaceted, it's a multidimensional pursuit and it's an ongoing one, but I would say action is a big doing things, you know, getting out there and doing things is a, is a big part of it. So, you know, my advice to people would be, yeah, you need to kind of find your purpose, but you also just need to get out and do things too. (laughs) And, and then, then you, you often discover it through action, right? You, you have to try, you know, again, that, you know, not to rely too heavily on the comparing it to eating, but you could sit around and think about all different types of foods you might like. But at some point, it's just like, you got to start eating food and being like, yeah, I do like that. Or I do, I don't like this. Or I do like that. And so I think we can get, I think we, we sometimes have the, you know, have the tendency to get too cerebral about it or to get like too like introspective or ruminative when we're constantly thinking about, is this my purpose? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Um, when a lot of times you just need to, you know, put one foot in front of the other and go out and do things and figure out what works for you and get that kind of feedback of, oh, yeah, I am making a contribution. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Yeah. And I, I absolutely agree. And I, I, you know, with strategy, when we do strategy work with companies, it's like, you can sit in a room and like strategize yourself to death. Right. But oftentimes it's, it's coming up with some really clear initiatives and then it's taking action. Like you're talking about, right. It's, it's hypothesizing, yeah. Hey, what can I do right now with the resources that I have to get the biggest upside in the long term? And then it's going to execute and then you execute and you make adjustments along the way. But you know, I think you're right. If, if you're just sitting in a dark room with a journal and you're trying to figure out your life's purpose and you think that, okay, I got it defined and it's never going to change. I think you may be in for a little surprise because I think to your point, you know, it's, it's this ongoing process of self-discovery and trying things and, and just acting. Yeah. Yeah. And getting that feedback. And, you know, one thing in the, in the research on, on meaning in life that our team and, and others as well find is that a lot of times the way you make an evaluation of whether you feel feel meaningful 
is through some kind of feedback or recognition that other people value, that you're making a difference in the lives of others. And that you can only make a difference in the lives of others if you're doing, like you said, if, if you're doing something, if you're sitting at home, <laughs> just thinking, then people aren't going to, aren't going to see you in action. So I think that that sense of mattering is really important to living a meaningful life. And that involves rolling up your sleeves and making contributions, um, whatever those contributions are. Absolutely. So I, I think frequently I've noticed this like dis- disassociation of professional life and emotional well-being. And sometimes people will put their career first and they say, look, if I just grind it out for the next 10 years, then you know, I'll, I'll reach a certain financial status or you know, a, a certain position in my organization that will give me more freedom and more optionality. So they'll say, okay, I'm going to sacrifice some things now for like this future benefit. What, what do you think about that? Is, is that a flawed way of thinking? And why do you think some people disassociate professional life and emotional well-being and not integrate those two? Yeah. So, you know, first I would say there's a great deal of of variability between <laughs> individuals. So what I mean by that is, you know, some people have the types of personalities where they do put kind of everything, they put all, you know, their investment in one thing. And so, you know, all they want to do is work, you know, they're, they're just, you know, that's what they want to do for those people. Sure. But most people aren't that way. You know, most people do need some kind of balance between, you know, domains that provide meaning. So for instance, if you, if you have a family, you know, just to use an obvious one, you have a family and then you have a career, you can't, you know, your, your brain doesn't partition things to where they don't contaminate one another. Right. So if you're having problems at home, that's going to spill over into work life. If you're stressed out at home, that's going to affect your productivity, your creativity at work. Likewise, if you're having problems and stress and anxiety um, at, at work, that's going to spill over into your home life in all likelihood. So in other ways, it might seem like a good investment to be like, well, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to grind away, like you said, um, for so many years, because it seems like that's the best way to plan for the future. But to the extent that that compromises your other investments, right, your, your investments in your home life, you know, then that might not be a very good strategy. So you do hear people throw around terms like work-life balance a lot, but it is, you know, so it does kind of seem like, oh, everyone's talking about that, but it is true. I mean, at some basic level that you need to figure out what's important. And often for many of us, it's multiple things and you have to nourish all those things. And if you neglect some of them at thinking, well, in 10 years, I'll get back to that. For one, as we all know, you you don't really know how long, you never really know how long you have. I could walk outside this the building after this podcast and feel like, hey, that was pretty great and get run over by a bus, right? Um, right? So at some level, you have to live uh, in the moment. Why, of course, always, you know, planning, planning for the future reasonably. But, you know, I, I do think people can, you know, can over plan or over dedicate in one space and end up neglecting other spaces and then get to the point of, of looking back and being like, wow, like, was that really, was that really worth it? Maybe I should have spent a little bit more time you know, with my children, which, you know, by the way, using the family example, that doesn't last forever. Kids grow up (laughs) and, and, you know, other opportunities don't, don't always just stand frozen in time while you're, while you're grinding away. And likewise, if you don't cultivate the, you know, if you don't nourish those other sources of meaning, 
and as a result, you end up having personal problems that bleed into work, then that might undermine your goal to grind away um, and be successful in the first place. So I think that it's it's good to try. I think work-life balance is important. Unless, like I said, you're just that rare person, which they exist, which is just they're like a one, you know, this is the one thing I do and this is all I do. Yeah. Absolutely. So along those same lines, do you notice a particular set of behavioral problems with people that spend their entire life trying to climb this like corporate ladder, right? Because it's almost like we have these systems in life and these structures in life where it's like you enter in as an inexperienced person, you get more experience, you get into management, management tier, then eventually you rise up the ranks. Is, is that problematic in your mind? Or is that a good approach to constantly trying to improve yourself and, and climb to whatever position or make progress. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think it's inherently problematic. I mean, goal structures are are pretty good for for meaning in life. What I mean by that is you don't, I mean, take the opposite case. You, you don't want to feel like your life's totally chaotic and you have no scaffolding in place for what to do next and what to pursue. So if you're fortunate enough to find a path that works for you and you can set reasonable goals like climbing the corporate ladder i think that i think that's fine with the caveat of course of you know everything i said about recognizing that you know if that comes at the expense of other things that are important to you then you know that might ultimately undermine that goal but yeah i don't think there's anything inherently wrong with you know like with that kind of goal pursuit uh, of climbing the corporate ladder and it's not for everyone, of course, right? Like sure. some people, um, and oftentimes things come up that are, I'd say structure, goal structure is good, but also be open to possibility and be open to change, which is something that we've definitely noticed in the pandemic. So people, so that's a good example of something that people wouldn't have predicted, or most people didn't predict, I guess, the pandemic, but it was a shock. And it was the type of shock that caused a lot of people to rethink priorities, and what they want to do with their life. And so, I, you know, I would say structure is good with a certain level of flexibility and openness to, op- you know, you don't want to close the door to other paths and opportunities because you're so focused on just one thing. Um, but generally having some guidance and goal structures, you know, helps keep, helps people, you know, stay focused and, and motivated. Let's talk a little bit more about this because it's interesting. I've always set goals throughout my life. Ever since I was a little kid, I guess I was that weirdo, you know, like (laughs) writing down goals when I was young. Uh, But I don't do it in the traditional sense, meaning that when it's January 1st, I write down a bunch of goals and New Year's resolutions. I just have this this book and I jot down goals like, Hey, I want this. I want to achieve this. I want to progress in this area. And I'm just constantly making notes. And then I go back through and I highlight and, and, Oh, I did that. And sometimes I'll achieve things. I'm like, Oh, I forgot. I even wrote that down. Mm. Uh, But then there's also this like part of me where, you know, when I took that CFO position, that was nowhere in my goal book. I wasn't like, Hey, one day I'm going to be a CFO of this company. It's just circumstantial, right? It came up through one of my clients and I ended up moving my family across the country. And like I said, that was not a goal. It was never a goal. Right. It was never an intention. Nothing I even thought of. It, it just came up. So it's, it's interesting because since that experience, I've talked to a lot of business leaders and, and I asked them that question. I, I say, do you write goals? And it's funny because I talked to this chief investment officer at this you know, Fortune 500 public company. And he said, no, I, I never write goals. He's like, drives my wife crazy. My wife writes all these goals down. I don't, he's <laughs> like, I just live life and but then I talked to other people like, nope, you set goals and this and this and this, and then you follow this. Are we tricking ourselves when it comes to goal setting and following that structure like you're referring to? 
or is it still good practice or does it just depend on the person? Yeah. Well, I do think it depends on the person, but I, I would also say to the people who say they don't write down goals, writing down goals isn't the only way to pursue goal structures. And so what I mean by that is I don't, you know, I don't really write down goals either, but I think a lot of times, whether people are consciously aware of it or not, they are goal setting, right? They see something, you know, maybe even it's just a peer. They see somebody and they're like, oh, wow, I'd like to be doing what they're doing. They're a good role model. And so they might not be going down and being like, okay, here's the five things I need to do to pursue that. Or here's the explicit goal that I have to do that. But a lot of times we form, we kind of intuitively form these goal structures that help guide us. So I don't even think it needs to necessarily be an organized or formalized process. And a lot of people, you know, approach things differently. Some people really, really do want to write, want to write things down that helps them. Other people seem to just do fine having sort of a mental model of how it works. And yeah, maybe there are a few people that just let the wind take them where they are. But I suspect most people who are successful at some level have some intuitive goal structure, even if it's very, very flexible. Because I think you provided a great example of how opportunities came up for you that you didn't, you know, weren't written down as goals, but you didn't say, oh, this isn't my goal. So I'm not doing it, right? You adapted. Um, And so I think flexibility is really important. So really to me, like goals and goal structures are just to provide some basic framework for how to move forward because the opposite is chaos or uncertainty. And that, you know, that leads to paralysis. If you're like, I have no idea what I want to do. And people have this experience, right? You know, I don't, you know, I've heard a lot of college students who say they have this experience. And and I kind of had this experience too, but, you know, before figuring out what I wanted to do in college, which is I'm interested in all these things. I don't, I could major in this. I could major in that. I could do that. I could do that. And that can be very paralyzing. At some point you have to be like, okay, you know, there's lots of things I want to do, but I got to start down some path. Even if that path is broad and might have, could fork into multiple, you know, career directions. I got to move and I got to pick some direction to go into. And so I think people do that even if they're not, even if it's not a, a very formalized written process. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a good point. They don't always have to be written, but I, I think, you know, they have some type of goal structure and, and there's that flexibility. Let, let's switch gears. Let's talk about your TED talk. So in your TED talk, you, you speak about nostalgia and you're, you talk about how inducing nostalgia can boost self-esteem and self-belonging. How do you recommend inducing nostalgia in the workplace to improve performance if you recommend it at all? So I would definitely recommend nostalgia. And I think using nostalgia in the workplace or in any aspect of your life. And at first, it's going to sound like maybe I'm contradicting myself slightly because previously I said, don't sit around and introspect and ruminate. You got to get out and do things. And so then a lot of people think, well, isn't nostalgia just ruminating? Isn't it just being stuck in the past? Isn't nostalgia just you like, you know, going back to old memories instead of moving forward in life? And I I think intuitively that makes some sense. But what we discovered when we started researching nostalgia, which has now been almost for the last 20 years, is that's actually not how most people experience nostalgia. When most people feel like, so, you know, take a classic example of you maybe hearing a song that's like, oh yeah, that's a song from my past. And then it makes you think about something or, you know, looking at old photos or, or, or something like that. When most people have that experience, it doesn't make them sit around and ruminate. It reminds them of things that are important and it reminds them of things that they find meaningful. 
particularly time with friends and family, you know, rituals or traditions with loved ones, you know, like really meaningful social experiences that actually kind of pushes people forward because it's like, oh yeah, like I did something really fun or really cool or really meaningful and important. And I should do stuff like that more often, or I should do that again. And so it turns out when people experience nostalgia, it actually has this motivational effect where it orients them towards doing other things that are meaningful. So in the workplace or really any aspect of life, you know, if you're feeling, and oftentimes this is when nostalgia is is triggered. If you're feeling uncertain or anxious or lonely or sad in some way, you revisit these old memories and it helps remind you of what's important, what's special about life. Um, what makes life worth living. And then that can be a source of inspiration and give you ideas and and like, you know, kind of energize you. And so I would say in the workplace, certainly it's a good way to help build relationships. So doing social activities with your team, doing things that allow you to cultivate memories so you can revisit them, especially in, in, in times of upheaval or uncertainty. You can be like, yeah, there's tension going on in our team right now. But, you know, we can all recollect and, you know, revisit this memory from this um, event we did a couple of years ago or whatever. So you can have that type of nostalgia within a team. Another cool thing about nostalgia at work is it's a way to form deeper bonds because it's it's a form of self-disclosure. So what I mean by that is if you talk to a coworker about a nostalgic experience, something that's really special to you, something you did with your family or you know something you remember from childhood that really stands out to you as important, you're telling them something about your story. And that's a way to make a deeper connection with people. And so, yeah, I would encourage people at work to, you know, to feel like they can have, you know, photographs or other things around that kind of remind them of, you know, what's important in their life story. And that would maybe cue them or or give them the opportunity to talk to people and get to know people better and share these experiences with others. And oftentimes, I think that's a great way. It's not just an icebreaker. It's a great way to to form deeper connections with people. And those are the types of connections that, you know, really help with team building and creativity and innovation and and all the things that, you know, that we want people to be doing in team-based organizations. And I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more, especially when it comes to like connection, because to me, I have a lot of contacts or friends just by the nature of what I do and, and rubbing shoulders with a lot of people. But I could tell you, you know, sometimes the surface level conversations get a little boring to me. Um, you know, where you're just like, how's the weather? How's this? You know, it's just very surface level. And those are fine to have. Um, it's not like I come up to a stranger and I just immediately start talking about like my childhood or my dad or something like that. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's a, a certain level of trust that's built when you share those experiences. And I like what you said, when you share your story, right? Because it's like, Hey, I trust you. I'm going to let you into my life. I'm going to be a little vulnerable here and show you my human side. But then I was also talking to to just, you know, a few random individuals, then they're, they're not connected anyway. So these are just, you know, a, a thread of thoughts that are going on out there where people say with the world being so polarized, right. Mm, yeah. Um, they're almost fearful of, of sharing anything about their life. They're like, I'd rather just go in. And when you say, how's my weekend, I'm just going to say it's fine. Um, because if I say, well, my weekend was great. You know, we went to church on Sunday. It was great. Some people get offended by that. Or you say, Hey, I went to this, you know, this gathering and somebody says, well, I don't believe in that type of gathering and and what you were chanting for. And and that's offensive or whatever it is. So people start closing off. And I mean, what are your thoughts on this? And how do you think people can overcome this? And and should they just say, Hey, screw it. I am who I am. And I'm going to like share things, obviously not in an offensive way or disrespectful way, but 
is it better to tell your story, be vulnerable and have these connections, or is it better to just stay closed off to people? I think generally it's better to try to forge those connections and share your story because, you know, I totally understand what you're saying. And, you know, it's an unfortunate sign of our times, I guess, that there's so much social distrust and that's, you know, people would feel like they should have some kind of negative attitude towards you because you are doing you, you know, you have different interests and beliefs and experiences than they do. But I think avoiding it sounds very strategic in a lot of ways, just, you know, just to take the approach of, well, let's just, let's just not talk. Let's just, you know, avoid all that. But I just don't think that's sustainable. I mean, the way humans work is we are very social, we're very interconnected, and we long for those kind of deep, meaningful relationships. And to me, a work environment is not going to be very healthy, very creative, very inspiring, if there's a lot of paranoia and distrust and people feeling alienated and disconnected. So at some level, I feel like, is that the type of place you want to be if that's going to be the situation where you can't be yourself? And like, you know, you, and I think you were right to say, obviously with a certain level of respect and humility and understanding of of differences and clearly trying to avoid offending anyone. But I think for the vast majority of people, most of our daily lives and the things that we like doing shouldn't be (laughs) offensive and shouldn't be a problem. If somebody has a different religion than you or a different politics than you, honestly, that just shouldn't really matter. And I think we need to get past, you know, we really need to work on getting past that and avoiding that by not talking to one another. It's just pushing the problem down the road. And it's not good for, it's not healthy for organizations. It's not healthy for civic life. It's not healthy for our individual psychology. It just will make us more stressed and anxious and lonely and angry and you know disconnected and so at some level you got to put yourself out there i guess and take some risks and you know as long as you feel like you're being an honest broker i think that's all you can do yep and i agree and i, I think like this isolation and disconnect and and everything else has led to some mental health issues that we're no. seeing emerge and you know i was fortunate to serve in an ecclesiastical leadership position and part of that is you know i i had some interaction with the youth and i know there were a number of youth and some that you'd be surprised, you know, because you, you see these people, they, they have their cheerful face on. I mean, they, they come from good families, but you hear that, you know, they, there's a suicide attempt or, you know, they're contemplating it or, or whatever. So, you know, I, I think we've seen this like influx in suicide rates. And I know this is a topic that you speak heavily on and in your article, the campus left versus the mentally ill, you asked the question, do young adults need mental health services or more experience independently navigating the world? Can you expand on this question? And and I want to hear your thoughts on this topic because I think it's very important to to get out there. Yeah. So it, it is an important topic and it is a complex one because I think two things can be simultaneously true. On the one hand, I think it's fair to say, as a number of people who focus on topics like helicopter parenting or snowplow parenting or the the rise of victimhood culture, I think it's fair to say from that perspective that there's a lot of coddling going on in our society. And part of this is, you know, it's not, you know, it's not pointing the finger at at anyone, but it's part of it is, uh, you know, kind of a strange you know, unexpected side effect, perhaps of affluence, success story, right? That our society um, in the Western world, particularly in the United States has been very successful. 
And that means in a lot of ways that the vast majority of people don't have to worry about where they're going to get their next meal or don't have to worry about, you know, surviving the day. And so when, without those concerns, it's easier for people to start fixating on smaller and smaller vulnerabilities. So where it used to be, I don't want to get beat up. Now it's, I don't want to get my feelings hurt. Right. Or where it used to be, um, I want to make sure that I don't make people sufficiently mad or they might use violence against me. Now it's, I don't want to be made fun of or rejected. And obviously we, you know, we care about these things. We don't want, we don't want people to be bullied. We don't want people to be um, excluded or any of these things, you know, but part of it is at some level, it's like, are we victims of our own success? And as a result, we're, you know, we've made ourselves kind of soft, I guess is a, one way of saying it. And so from that perspective, I think it's very, very reasonable and fair to ask, what are the consequences of, of coddling children, of not giving them the opportunity to make mistakes, to pick themselves, you know, to fall down and pick themselves up, to organize their own day, to organize their own events, to, you know, the hovering and the helicopter parenting might be actually making them more vulnerable to mental health problems because they're not having the opportunities to develop that resilience um, that they would get through hardship. So if you take away the hardship, which we say, hey, that's great. Look, we're a very successful society. We've removed a lot of hardships. Um, the downside of that is you take away too many and people don't know how to, how to grapple with things on their own. So I think that's true. While simultaneously, we can recognize that there are challenges in our society that might be legitimately making mental health problems increase that are not just helicopter parenting, right? So these are things like um, the decline in social in, in social life. So people are less likely to uh, attend a church now than they used to be. People are less likely to know their neighbors. They're less likely to be involved in civic organizations. People spend a lot more time on computers by themselves, um, where they used to spend time with their friends and neighbors. People move and, you know, they're, they're disconnected from family, Families are smaller than they used to be. So people have, you know, fewer um, natural social networks from, from the kinship bonds that they would have through, um, through big extended families. And that might be creating certain vulnerabilities of making people more lonely, um, which in turn leads to greater risk of depression and suicide and these challenges. So I think it's fair to say that some of these things might be related to the, you know, like I talked about in that article, some of these things might be related to we're being really overprotective and it's okay for people to, you know, they don't need protected from speakers on campus. They don't need protected from, you know, microaggressions or, or things like that. People are pretty resilient on the whole. Our species wouldn't have made it very far if they weren't. Um, yet at the same time, recognizing that doesn't mean that there aren't real challenges that we face in our modern social lives that might be creating um, certain vulnerabilities. If, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I think you bring up a lot of good points. And I mean, it, it is so complex and it's so nuanced in so many ways. I mean, I, I think back of when I was in high school, I can't imagine going to high school and having social media like that exists mm -hmm. today. I mean, yeah. can you imagine people have cameras. I hear things of people posting the same exact picture and then they have a contest among friends who gets you know more likes. And it's yeah. like, you get your self-worth from that. And I mean, I, there's just so many things and I'm like, wow, it's, it's just so much to deal with and to not have that perspective either. I mean, cause what's going on from a social unrest perspective, I, I mean, there, there's been times in our history where, you know, there's social unrest in the sixties and, um, yeah. 
another periods of time where you think back the dark days of World War II. I mean, geez, how dark was the world then? And but when you don't have those perspectives um, and, and those experiences, yeah, I mean, it, it can seem like it's the end of the world, right? And and no yeah. doubt, I mean, and things are becoming more and more challenging and more nuanced. But I mean, you bring up a lot of good points there. Yeah, no, I think you're right. That perspective is really important, and that's something I don't think we're we're doing a very good job of necessarily teaching because a lot of people don't seem to recognize that that's something actually we focus on here in some of the institutes that uh, I'm associated with. So here at um, NDSU, I work with the Chalians and we're very much focused on human progress. And so one of the things that is an interest for us is making sure that students are well educated about like how far we've come and challenges like poverty hunger, literacy. I mean, in a lot of ways, the world is demonstrably getting better. And this is, you know, this is the point I was trying to make when I said, so in a way, we're kind of victims of our own success, because there's been so much progress and life is so much better in so many ways. And so it's hard for people to see that and, and to, to, to kind of look beyond themselves. And so I think that is, an, I think that perspective taking that you that you noted is really important. And I also work with an institute called the Archbridge Institute. And again, a bit that's a big area of our focus there is on social mobility and, you know, trying to make sure more and more people have the opportunity to pursue their dreams and pursue the American dream and climb the economic and social ladders. I think a big part of that is, is resilience as well as, you know, treating people as if not like they're victims that can't do anything for themselves, but they actually, you know, have a great deal of agency in that they have the power to make their life better, to pursue goals, to take on new challenges and to aspire for more which requires an optimistic kind of energetic mindset that we might be undermining if we're in this, if we're overprotective with our kids, with our young people, or just in general, you're seeing it more and more, even with adults, like this idea of like, I should never be offended or I should never have to deal with, you know, somebody who has an opposing point of view, like the office politics thing you you mentioned. I mean, I think we've got to, we've got to work past that and get back to a spirit of resilience and that people are, have agency and they can actually do a lot. They have a lot under their, under their own control. Yeah. And I I absolutely agree. And it's interesting. I mean, I think Charles Dickens says it, said it best where he said, this is the best of times and the worst of times. And and I think it's uh, so true. Like you said, we're eradicating poverty in a lot of areas. We, we have infrastructure, clean water, all these things that are great, improving the quality of life of so many people, but there's also a lot of challenges as well. Let's switch gears and, and let me ask you this final question. So in a lot of businesses, we notice this gap between the what and the why, right? Companies, obviously, they know what they're doing or most of them know what they're doing and what they're pursuing. But then there's this like why, why the organization exists, what's the purpose behind the organization. Can you talk to me about, you know, going back to the purpose conversation, what's the value in a business like building from a purpose-driven point of view or setting up a structure where people can come into the organization, show up as who they are and pursue their own purpose and be included and accepted and have equitable ties to the business, for lack of a better word. What's the upside of this and and what are your thoughts to um, purpose in one's life and in the organization? Yeah. So obviously humans have existed long before the modern corporation but it's but it's useful to think about that and it's useful to think about in our historic past when people largely you know worked for themselves or they were farming and hunting and you know just sustaining themselves 
what would have given them purpose wasn't obviously commuting to a job and, you know, working for a company, but, to, you know, providing for themselves and their families and then building, you know, their community, feeling like they're serving something greater than themselves and being part of that greater community. So that's how our brains are wired up. That hasn't changed just because the way we work and the way we do things has changed, right? So our brains are still the same, even though the a modern, most of us don't work for ourselves now. Um, or if we do, it's because we are entrepreneurs and we're running a business, but we're not, you know, most of us aren't living out and like homesteading or just sure. on our own off grid doing our own thing. Um, and so a lot of the ways that we scratch that itch for like, for purpose is through work, right? Is through feeling like, well, I'm going here and it's part to obviously collect the paycheck so I can support, which, you know, that basic need to support yourself and your family. But in addition to that, we want to see that we are contributing to something bigger than ourselves. So I think part of the rise of this in the corporate and business world is at some level a recognition that just because it's, you know, we live in a modern time doesn't mean that, you know, the human brain has changed. And so we still want that. We still want to feel like we're connected in some way. And so to the extent that a business can tap into that, not to, you know, not to manipulate or exploit people, but to legitimately give them, as you, as you noted, the opportunity to flourish at work, to figure out like how they can contribute. And it turns out if you can do that, it's good for everyone. It's good for the business, obviously, if you have inspired employees that want to make unique contributions, but it's really good for the employee too, because that's something, like I said, that's, that that's within them that they want to do. They want to be able to take care of themselves and their families, and they want to be able to contribute to something bigger than themselves. And if they can find part of that in their professional life, it's going to make them happier and healthier. It's going to make them more you know, likely to stay with that business. It's going to make them contribute more. It's going to make them less likely to cause problems at work. Sure. And it's going to make the company more, more successful. So I think companies are figuring that out. And you know, related to that, in a lot of surveys, you'll see um, sizable percentages of people say, as long as they can meet, you know, within obviously reason, they want it, people want to be paid well, of course, like they something that people don't care about money, but people will often sacrifice money in exchange for doing something that gives them meaning. In other words, they'll take a little bit of a, you know, they'll take if they had two jobs and one pays more, you know, than the other, but the other is more fulfilling. Um, as long as the other meets their, you know, is sufficient, you know, meets a certain threshold um, that they'll accept, um, they'll often prioritize purpose and, and that fulfilling job over just the total, you know, making the absolute most amount of money possible. And so I think that, you know, recognizing that is, is good because it's easy to be like, oh, well, we just need to pay people more. Or we just need to do this or people just need to have more material things for people. And it's not that people don't care about that stuff. But there's something, you know, there's something else, there's something deeper that they want. And to the extent that a business can help, can help people reach that, it's good for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think I read once about Southwest Airlines where they actually pay their employees a little bit less. Okay. Not, not a significant amount less, but just a little bit less just to drive home that, that very point of saying, Hey, look, we want you to come work at Southwest because you believe in having fun at work. Right. And you believe in the culture and you want to be here. Instead of, 
hey, we want to just pay you more and, and we just want you to take this job because you make you know, a few extra bucks. And I think that's so important. And I, I think most people will see that, you know, over time, you, you know, you can, you can make all the money in the world, but when it comes down to it, I mean, it's just money, but the I other can't thing, remember. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, I was just going to say, I can't remember who, do you remember there was some celebrity, like, I don't know if it was like Brad Pitt or George Clooney. There was some like famous actor who was like, I wish everybody could be rich and famous so they could realize that that actually doesn't <laughs> like that, you know, that doesn't solve all your, your, your problems and it doesn't, you know, necessarily make your life more meaningful. I can't remember who, who said it. Um, but I, I think people often think that, right. It's that, that, oh, well, you know, people have it so good because they're rich, but once people make more money, they often realize that, yeah, it's nice. And obviously everyone needs to meet, you know, to meet their basic needs um, and to be able to do the things they want to do. But it's not a complete picture of by any means of what makes a life fulfilling or meaningful. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, there, there's so much more to life and I mean, life's short. So I think uh, a lot of good messages out there. Um, you know, I, I like the message of, look, remember the past, create these memories that are going to um, allow you to have this like equity, this nostalgia equity, you know, that you could tap into later. Cause I, I think that's really critical, but also, you know, take action, right. Go out there and try things and, and see what you're interested in. And that's how you, you discover things in life. So this has been a great conversation, Clay. You know, I, I think the work that you're doing, the research you're doing is um, extremely valuable. If you haven't listened to uh, Clay's Ted talk, be sure to check that out. Highly recommend that. And thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.